So at the uh, beginning of this quarantine, before everybody got really, really sick of screens, um, and thankfully since then things have opened up and we can go out and, and visit one another um, in small groups. But at the very beginning, as a family, every once in a while we would play these online games called Jackbox games. You, you put the, the playing board, stream it to your television, you all have your devices, and you can play these different trivia games, Fibbage and Drawful and some of these other uh, games um, on, online. And so we'd be playing this game, and every once in a while, as the clock was ticking down, as you had to submit your answer on your phone, one of us would send in an answer, and it was very, very obvious that it was the wrong answer because there was a typo. And so you'd be in a rush to get it in in time, and then all the answers would go up on the screen, and then there was a typo, and everybody would be like, Gleiss? Who wrote Gleiss? What's Gleiss? Oh, nobody choose Gleiss. It was so obvious. Don't pick Gleiss. That's a typo. <laughs> Remember when they said Gleiss? It would be wonderful if, as we were going through life, uh, all of the wrong decisions, all of the foolish decisions, all of the um, ways that we're going to lead to various forms of, of destruction were really, really obvious like typos. It would be great if we all walked with such a clarity of wisdom that uh, the wrong responses just stood out to us like typos on a screen. This morning, we're going to start a series on wisdom literature we're going to work our way through the Proverbs in the summer. As we just finished a series on mercy and justice, not because those, you know, those themes uh, uh, are something that we're no longer going to be focusing on in these days that we live in, but we're going to thoughtfully think about how to be people of wisdom in the world that we live in and in this city. How can we be um, agents of mercy and justice? And on the ground, what will the wisdom of God look like when those of us who are at rest in his great grace um, begin to live from that and see the goodness of God's wisdom culminating in Christ's cross and then manifesting kind of through our hands and feet in very practical ways um, as we, as we uh, walk out uh, the goodness of God's guidance. So this morning our text is from Proverbs chapter 1, the first seven verses. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction and wise dealing and righteousness, justice and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is God's word. Now, throughout the book of Proverbs, you're going to find there's constant appeals to give wisdom to the foolish. There's constant outreach to the fools and to the weak, calling them, us, to be wise. This was written in 970 BC-ish. And at that time in, in um, human history, in the ancient world, you didn't look out for the poor. You walked by the poor. You didn't look out for the weak. Um, by and large, in the ancient world, you oppressed the poor and the weak. And our modern ideas about being incredibly generous to the poor and weak are actually born of a Christian worldview, where when you study um, history and you find uh, that uh, the Christians would care for not only their own poor and the weak, but the poor and the weak in the city. In fact, we talked about this last week when 
uh, Julian was frustrated that Christianity was exploding through Rome. He reopened the pagan temples and tried to have a resurgence of paganism. And one of the things that Julian wrote was, these Galileans, you know, these Christians, they care not only for their own poor, but for our poor as well. And the poor are flocking to them like children to cakes. And it was a way of saying that this idea of caring for the poor at that time was novel. Today, of course, caring for the poor and the oppressed is something that's widely and generally accepted. But there's these constant appeals to care for the, the, the poor and the oppressed because ultimately our God, the heart of our God, was to come and to save the poor and the oppressed. Jesus Christ was the personification of the heart of God and he came to save the poor, the weak, the foolish, and the oppressed, who of course were us. So when you're looking at Proverbs and working through the, um, the book of Proverbs and reading and rereading it, what you want to consider is that this is not a collection of cold precepts. Um, these precepts are a, a constant building invitation and call to see the person behind the precepts, to fall in love with the person behind the precepts. And in fact, to be so drawn in a deep, um, in, in a deep uh, loving and um, you know, appetitive kind of way to the person behind the precepts that it actually changes your worldview, changes the way you see, changes the way that you act. So there's a flow uh, from the, the transformation of the heart and the mind because of the love and the, the love you have for the person behind the precepts to actually wanting to walk them out. And so that's important because as you're working through the Proverbs, you're not going to find language that sounds like, do this and you become my dear child. You're actually going to find that they all carry the same tone, which is, let this guide you, my dear child. In other words, um, the language of Proverbs, it kind of breathes this parental tone. It breathes this loving, caring you know, spirit of adoption. That's kind of the tone that it carries. In fact, somewhere around 25 times through Proverbs, you're going to find that language of being referred to as the dear child. So as you're looking at wisdom literature, you can look at it a few ways. You can read it like you are the, the child who's at the, the fork in the road and you've got to make a wise decision. You can also read through Proverbs like, you know, you're Solomon at the beginning who has the wisdom not because you did everything right, but because you made scores of scores of terrible decisions in your life and you're now actually being very retrospective and you're kind of doing this self-autopsy of all of your foolishness and you're going over you know sort of the catalog of your life of all the mistakes you made you don't want your children to make them and so you're you are looking at proverbs that way we can also read proverbs that way and we can also read it like through the voice of lady wisdom because solomon writes the book of proverbs uh puts the words in the mouth of a woman Lady Wisdom, who is speaking to us. Of course, Proverbs is bookended with you've got an adulterous woman, and then the book of Proverbs ends with a virtuous woman. And uh, really, the appeal is which is more attractive to you? Which woman is more attractive to you? Because that is a commentary on the condition of your heart. And so, this is the way that we kind of think about Proverbs proper and kind of at large some things to think about how we can understand this because often as modern readers, we look at the Proverbs and we see them like ancient tweets. This little thing, you just kind of pull it out, put it on the fridge and go, I'm going to live by that right there. And that is a bad way to understand wisdom literature because you're only going to have to read a couple chapters in to go, oh, this, this proverb seems to contradict this one. I have a problem. But you don't have a problem. Wisdom literature is cumulative. It builds. 
it has themes that run through it that continually teach us different facets and angles of which to look at various problems and challenges in life. And it's meant for us to sit and be contemplative and to consider the situation that's in front of us and what would wisdom look like. And so it continually builds. So it's not, it's not like a simple formula. You don't want to look at the book of Proverbs like it's a book of promises where it's like, oh, well, if I just do this thing verbatim, then life is going to work out for me. That's going to be foolishness because the Proverbs don't play out uh, with that degree of sort of one plus one formulaic simplicity. They're just not that way. And so we want to understand that, um, that we want to understand the nature of wisdom so that we can grow in wisdom, live in wisdom. And so this morning, starting with Proverbs 1, this kind of introduces us to the whole book. So we're going to look at two things, and we're going to ask two questions of this text for the purpose of this morning. Focus on them. Firstly, what is the wisdom of God? And then secondly, what is it going to look like to walk in the wisdom of God? So firstly, what is the wisdom of God? In the first four verses, we get a couple words that describe it. Insight, righteousness, justice, equity, prudence. This word insight uh, in the Hebrew is the word benah, and it means to see with distinction, right? To see with distinction contributing factors to the situation that's in front of you or the problem that's in front of you. Seeing with distinction versus just approaching situations in life and people and relationships with broad-brushed naivety. Um, if you've ever watched BBC Sherlock, it's a great show. And in Sherlock episodes, there's always, you know, there's always one policeman on the scene who's like, you know, well, it's an open and shut case, you know, the end. Um, it's very clear what happened here. And then Sherlock will come in and it kind of has this tone like, not so fast. <laughs> I am Benedict Cumberbatch. Right? And, and then he goes on this huge, you know, montage of seeing with distinction all of these little nuances and clues in the room. And then he, you know, kind of gets to the end of it and he's like, aha, Mr. Body killed, was killed in the library with a candlestick by Colonel Mustard. I've solved it. He sees with this distinction. This is the Hebrew word banah. It's not just broad brushing everything. Have you ever heard a child come back with a, a bad mark on the report card? Maybe you've been this child. And uh, they say, the teacher hates me. Really? Is that what's going on? Yep, that's why. That's why the mark is like this. The teacher hates me. Um, are you sure? Because it seems like you're trying to get a master's degree in animal farm. And maybe there could be other reasons why your mark is this way. Nope, that's why. Or you talk to somebody who uh, breaks up with somebody. And, and you ask them why the relationship broke up. And uh, they say, uh, well, they're crazy. You know, ah, man, they're just crazy. Really? Is that all there was to it? Or you talk to someone who's um, having a, a relational conflict. And they might think of one or two solutions. Whereas a trained psychologist, a trained counselor can think of 12 reasons that have contributed to the situation being the way that it is because of the expertise that they have. Or perhaps somebody's new to business and the sales are not going well and they, they can only see one or two options. But someone who's been in the industry for 30 years, they've got the wisdom of experience and they can see with distinction and nuance, they might come up with dozens of options to revisit that marketing strategy or that sales strategy. Seeing with distinction uh, is a completely, uh, completely different than going through life just broad brushing everything into huge categories in order to kind of sort of you know, deal with them. Think about conversations we have about the societal issues that are 
uh, hot t- points of conversation today around, around uh, culture and ethnicity and race and injustice. Think about what it looks like when you um, broad brush those conversations. They're always oversimplified, right? I'll say things like, well, you know, the reason why we've got problems with, you know, with poverty is we have the wrong social model. That's the problem. It's because um, the, uh, the liberals are uh, in power. And when the conservatives are in power, then that's going to fix it. Or it's not the conservatives, it's not the liberals. It's when the NDP get their chance, that's going to fix it. Or it's not the NDP, it's the Green Party. Then they're, See, it's the wrong social model. That's too simple. That's too simple. You, it's broad brushed. You look at, uh, have another conversation where they say, no, it's not the social model. It's about personal responsibility. The problem is people don't take personal responsibility. My life is fine because I am a person who takes personal responsibility. And if everybody just took personal responsibility, then the world would be fixed. Really? You don't know anybody who's not a hard worker taking personal responsibility and yet they are suffering at the hands of a broken system that is, that is uh, preventing them from, be, from being able to get ahead. It's too simple. These are complex, complex problems. We need the wisdom of God. <laughs> in terms of how to address and engage in conversation and be ministers of, of mercy, and ju- mercy and justice and love and care in our city. We don't want to just broad brush everything. Notice the other um, descriptors here. They're important um, in terms of uh, righteousness, defining things as God would define them, right? Something being right as God in his word would define it as being right. Justice, as we talked about the last four weeks, about always being inseparably connected to caring for vulnerable classes, that being justice. Um, equity, right? Peaceful uprightness and prudence, this pra- being practical and thoughtful and strategic. So you can see that the wisdom of God, it's so layered, it's so complex. It's, this, it's, uh, it's beautiful and deep and it's, uh, and it's not something that can be broad brushed. When we look at those four verses and just marinate them, marinate in them uh, for a little while, uh, you see um, how important it is. And you see how uh, unhelpful it is to just broad brush uh, situations. If you've ever been in a situation where somebody says to you, you know, we'll use in this, um, in this age of identity politics, let's use this example. Somebody will say, oh, well, you're conservative. Say no more. Oh, you're liberal. Oh, you're NDP. Oh, you're Green Party. Say no more. I know everything about you already. I know what you think. You don't even need to talk anymore. I've seen the memes. I understand you perfectly. It's difficult um, to engage uh, in thoughtful dialogue that way. And so we need the wisdom of God. And if we look at these four verses, these first four, and really marinate in what they are saying wisdom looks like, seeing with distinction and righteousness and justice and equity and prudence, we find that the wisdom of God is having the insight to consider the situation that's right in front of us, the foresight to consider where our choices in that situation will lead us, and then the ability to choose in the face of hardship or the face of difficulty and to make a choice with the depth of godly character. That's what the wisdom of God is. And you say, oh, well, that's it. Oh, my goodness. Well, if that's all it is, I'm glad we had this chat preacher on Sunday morning because easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Let's all just, let's all just live with wisdom. Well, that's not how wisdom works, of course. We, we, it, it builds. We can't just go into prayer, uh, leave our Bibles closed, 
all week and maybe open them on Sunday morning to read the text that I'm reading from and just kind of leave them over there and then go to prayer like uh, little kid Billy Batson uh, for five minutes and then shazam, just come out and like, I'm Captus Corpus Callosum. I've got perfect left brain, right brain, Corpus Callosum connectivity. I'm big brained. I've got the wisdom of God. I went to prayer and God zapped me with wisdom. That's not, that's not at all how wisdom works. In order for God's wisdom to guide us, we have to have hearts that are guidable. And we are not born guidable. Spoiler alert, you work through Proverbs and you get to chapter 22 and it says that foolishness is in the, bound up in the heart of a child. All of us are born with this pl- proclivity to foolishness and it takes ongoing renewal and commitment to resting in the great grace of God, thankful for the indwelling spirit of God, but an ongoing commitment and discipline to feeding ourselves and our children with the word of God. And uh, this wisdom is something that we and our children are going to grow through, grow into through this lifelong journey of renewal and reform. And the Spirit of God and the Word of God are always inseparable, always working together. And there is formative power in worship and formative power in prayer and formative power in gathering every Sunday like this and making it a priority, formative power in, in scripture meditation. What do I mean by formative power? What I mean is, if you think about playing the piano or your golf swing or anything else that requires a discipline, there is a constant commitment to discipline that is required. Now, the joy comes later. If you stick at your piano practice long enough, there's going to be joy at the end of that because you're going to be able to play anything or your guitar practice or your golf swing or, or you know, your volleyball. Uh, I don't even play volleyball, so what do you even call that? Bumping? I have no idea. You volleyball players know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, that, see, this is why I should just stick to my notes and not come up with, with ad hoc Ill- sermon illustrations like volleyball when I, when I don't play volleyball. But the point is it requires a discipline, and that discipline does lead to delight. In fact, the discipline begins with delight, right? Like you, you love this thing. You're excited about it. You, you want to be proficient in it. So you go through this intentional formative process of discipline that is inseparably connected to your delight, And so for us as the children of God, this is how we understand a rescuing grace and renewing grace working together, forming us, the word of God, something that we do. Some of you have come out of backgrounds where this idea of spiritual disciplines was always formed um, in maybe a legalistic way. So I'm going to define legalism just so we're super clear on what it is. It, It means you think it's earning you something. So if, if you think there's a reward involved, then that's legalism. Well, God's going to love you more if you read your Bible this week. That's not true. Uh, but if you, if you keep your Bible closed, you'll live as a fool. You might go to heaven, but <laughs> because you're saved by grace alone, apart from your spiritual disciplines, but you're not going to live a life of wisdom. And so legalism is the idea that there's reward. Well, I'm not talking to you about being, learning to be a people of wisdom in our city uh, because we think that our spiritual disciplines are uh, connected to, uh, we're doing it motivated by re- reward. What I'm saying is, ultimately, we're going to be motivated uh, by our love for God, not reward, but renewal. We know that there, of course, is reward in, in broad sense of the goodness and the blessing of God. But there's not a legalism about the, perp- uh, the, the way in which we go about any of this. So there's this formative power in the word of God, formative power 
in repentance as we ask God to reveal our idolatrous appetites, the things that lead us into the uh, foolish decision-making in the first place. There's formative power in continually reading God's word because it's alive, because his word reads us. That's why we read it. Um, so, So that is what the wisdom of God is. The wisdom of God is this insight and this um, commitment to being able to look at the situations that are in front of us with distinction and justice and righteousness and then choose accordingly and have the foresight to see where those decisions are going and live in a way that is congruent with the goodness of God and the goodness of his character. That's the wisdom of God. But how now, how do we learn to walk in this? What does this text give us? So let's look at it. Um, The place to begin which is where Proverbs begins. The place to begin in order to be led into God's wisdom is honestly examining our inclination for foolishness. That's where it begins. And maybe you're thinking right now, well, wait a second. It sounds a little bit like my pastor is telling me on Sunday morning that I have the capacity to be a fool. Yep, you do. And so do I. And before we can be wise, we have to honestly examine how we're fools. That's what the text gives us here. If you look at verses 4 and verse 7, there's two different kind of fools that are described. Simple fool and a stubborn fool. Right? The simple fool is in verse 4. The stubborn fool is in verse 7. The simple fool in the Hebrew is leptaim. uses two different words. In English, it's the same word, fool, fool. But in the Hebrew, two, two different words. The leptaim and the ewelim. The the simple fool, this leptaim, is a form of foolishness resulting in being easily seducible. That's a simple fool. You're easily seducible. But a stubborn fool, the ewelim, this is a form of foolishness resulting from being set in your ways and quarrelsome and useless to instruct. So the... (laughs) The simple fool believes anyone, and the stubborn fool believes no one. The simple fool listens to everybody. Stubborn fool listens to nobody. The simple fool is consumed by popular opinion, and the stubborn fool is consumed with their own opinion. As you read out through all the Proverbs and you read through all the wisdom literature, you keep finding fools showing up in the ways that I'm describing to you. Simple fool, they fear criticism. They crave acceptance. That's why they listen to everyone. The stubborn fool, they're myopic. And they despise criticism. So they don't listen to anyone. And you and I have a proclivity to both or predominantly one of these ways of being fools. And so before we can be wise, we have to let the word of God read us and say, okay, hold on a second. How do I have the capacity to do this? Because both lead to embracing ideas or making choices or leading lives that are contrary to the wisdom of God and the faithfulness of God's word. The wisdom of God is going to enable us to be able to discern when we need to receive criticism and when we need to stand firm in the face of criticism. When you look at verse 7, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord. For those of you new to the scriptures or new to um, exploring Christianity this morning, and you've joined us. This fear of the Lord, it's not a phobia like you're afraid of spiders. 
I remember being in South Sudan. There was a tarantula in my room. I had fear. And the fear was I have to get away from it or I have to kill it. And if you have sort of that sort of phobic fear of God, you're going to be like, I have to get away from him or I have to kill him. Be my own God. So when the scriptures, particularly here, are calling uh, for the fear of the Lord being the beginning, it's not a fear that causes you to want to get away from God. It is a fear that causes you to be drawn to God. Fear here meaning awe and reverence and wonder and worship. When you have this awe and reverence of God, this wonder and worship of God, in other words, this deep affection, this deep love, you know, you, you become wise. You don't become wise by fearing that God's going to hurt you, like he's some sort of comic, cosmic ogre. You become wise if, you, if you're, you fear that your foolish, wayward worship will hurt him. If you love him, if you revere him, if you adore him, this is going to enable you and I to be wise because we're in awe of him, because we worship him. You see, guilt is a very weak motivator. Those of you who have children know this. It might work initially to get them moving, but it is not, guilt is not going to be an ongoing motivator in their life. The fear of the big stick coming, you know, metaphorically, is not going to be a motivator in their life. But gratitude and love, these sorts of things are ongoing motivators in their life. And so the awe and the reverence and the worship, the wonder of God, it's the beginning of wisdom because our love for him, it liberates us from being simple fools driven by what others think. It liberates us from being stubborn fools shackled to the nearsightedness of what we think because really what we care most about is living in congruence with what he thinks. And so this awe and this reverence and this, this worship, wonder of God, it makes our hearts guidable, which is what you need in order to be wise. And only after you're guidable can you be made wise. So day to day, what is this going to look like on the ground? Well, it's going to look like not filtering God's word through the shifting, subjective, ideological lens of our culture. It's going to look like looking very thoughtfully at what's going on in our culture and filtering that through the wisdom and the goodness of God's word, which means it can't remain closed during the week until Sunday shows up. It's got to be something that we're constantly ingesting and meditating on and encouraging our children to meditate on so that our hearts can become guidable, so that we can recognize with distinction the messages and the conversations and the, the preaching, if you will, of culture, because everybody is preaching, not just me. And so day to day, what does this look like? If you consider some of the most controversial conversations of our age, of our lifetime, conversations around sexuality, conversations around the sanctity of life right? in our country now as it relates to the, the, the movement uh, in terms of medically assistance, uh, medical assistance and death by physicians. If you consider um, the justice and race conversations that we're having, think about all of the hot conversations that are happening right now. If you are prone to simple foolishness, then you're going to let the culture hand your ideology to you. You're going to let your polit respective political party hand your ide ideology to you as it relates to sexuality or the sanctity of life or uh, race and uh, justice issues. 
you're, you're a simple fool. You're just like, hand it to me. That's what I think. I have this card in my pocket because this is the political party that I belong to. So therefore, whatever my functional Messiah says, I should think about this. That's what I think about it. That's going to be a simple foolishness. If you're, a, uh, if you're prone to stubborn foolishness, then day to day, you're not going to let anybody, including God, form your ideas around all of these hot topic conversations there today. Because you're going to say, this is what I think about it. And so nobody's going to change my mind about this. And so my encouragement to you is to consider um, that we, we, we don't want to be um, filtering uh, the word of God through the lens of culture, but rather considering very thoughtfully the conversations in culture and filtering them through the wisdom of the word of God. The concern for Christians is quite often, well, if God's word instructs me in the way that I think about some of these hot topics, race, equality, uh, sexuality, sanctity of life, if God's word um, calls me to have a conviction that is contrary to the culture, which of course uh, it does, I don't want to be seen as bigoted or hateful or narrow. And here's what I would say. It is impossible for any community to exist, faith or non-faith, any community to exist without having convictions and beliefs and values. They are a community because they share common convictions, ideas, and values. So the question for the church is not, well, if I, have, if I hold to the conviction of what the scriptures tell me on these issues, um, I'm going to be narrow and bigoted and angry. No. The question is, how do your beliefs in your community, in this community here at KW Redeemer, how do our beliefs enable us to engage with those who do not share our beliefs? And the answer is we look at Jesus, we look at wisdom, we consider wisdom, and we see that it is to be people of, of uh, love and respect and dignity to those who don't share our convictions while maintaining our convictions. People walked away from Jesus all the time as he engaged and had deep communion with people that did not share his values. And I promise you that the tax collectors and the social um, uh, uh, outcasts who had, been, who had maybe committed crimes or uh, the prostitutes were not walking away from Jesus and saying, Jesus agrees with everything I think. But they were walking away from Jesus after having lunch with him, thinking Jesus, Jesus is a caring and loving man. And so we can maintain... Uh, the wisdom of God's word and the convictions uh, that it gives us as we think about some of the difficult conversations of our culture today, while being very loving and respectful towards those who don't share those convictions. In John chapter 14, when Jesus said he was going to go and the Spirit was going to come, he said that, uh, he said that the Spirit would remind us of everything that he said and that he taught. In other words, that our hearts, by the indwelling power of the Spirit, would be formed by the word of God, making us guidable by the Spirit of God. And when you consider all of this and the implications of all of this, we realize that the, the wisdom of Proverbs is personified in Jesus. And as the Apostle Paul said, it culminates in the, the, the wisdom of God culminates in the foolishness of the cross. In other words, the way to avoid the foolishness of this world is to first embrace 
the foolishness of the cross. The foolishness being that, of course, the human condition was so bad, it required God himself to come and die. But yet we were so loved, to borrow from Tim Keller, that he was willing to do that. And therefore, Jesus lived this wise and loving life congruent with the wisdom of God. And he died in atoning death because we didn't live that life. And he paid that price for us. So now, through his divine resurrection and the indwelling power of the Spirit, you and I look at uh, wanting to walk out and live this way. And we're encouraged by the foolishness of the cross because God did not look down on the foolishness of humanity and crack the sky open with a lightning bolt and say, hey, yo, it's me, get it right. He came and he condescended and he was born poor in a feeding trough to die for us because we can't get it right. At Jesus Christ's birth, intelligent men, the one who, those that did the most complicated mathematics that there is as they stared at the stars, they knew the scriptures, they knew who... Uh, Jesus was and they bent their knee because that was the wisest thing to do. And so for us, the wisest thing for us to do as we are considering the messaging that's continually coming to us through our news feeds or various sources and culture is to bend our knee to the wisdom of the word of God because that is the wisest thing that we could do. I'm going to close with this. My, my, my professor of New Testament theology, his name was Dr. Samuel Lamerson, and he would always sign off his emails with uh, the signature Theos Anoitos. Theos Anoitos is Greek for God's fool. So his sign off was God's fool, Samuel Lamerson. And I had to look it up to figure out what, what it meant. I realized, oh, he's God's fool. And as you work through wisdom literature, as you read through the Proverbs over and over, as you teach your children to do the same and to love the word of God, you find that the way to avoid being the world's fool, the way to avoid being a simple fool, the way to avoid being a stubborn fool is to be God's fool. The simple fool is naively seduced by what everybody else thinks. The stubborn fool is consumed by what they think. But God's fool, if we are God's fool, we will have hearts that are guidable, willing to be reoriented, willing to be reformed by what God thinks. And so may God give us the insight to consider and the foresight to consider where our choices will lead. May we learn to love his word and ingest it and have the ability to choose wisely in the face of hardship or difficulty or contentious conversation with the character and wisdom that his Holy Spirit is forging in us. Let's pray.